Chapter 2 Bad Man's Wicked Behavior in Childhood I'll try to answer as you wish, Mr. Wiseman began. I'll start by saying he was very bad as a child. His beginning was ominous and foreshadowed that, in all likelihood, he was headed for no good. Even as a little one, he was inclined to several sins that showed him to be notoriously infected with sin so extensively that it affected every element of his nature. I'm quite certain he learned none of this from his father or mother, and he wasn't allowed to socialize with children who were wicked, so he didn't learn to sin from them. Rather, it was the other way around. Any time he freely moved about among others, he taught them new bad words to use along with bad behavior. To all of them, he used to be the ringleader and master sinner, even as a child. This is undeniably a bad beginning, and certainly demonstrated he was, as you say, corrupted, very much polluted with sin's effect on his nature. If I may speak freely, I confess that in my opinion, children are born into the world polluted with sin. I think that often the sins of their youth, especially while they are very young, come about rather by voluntary obedience to indwelling sin than by examples set by others. Not that they don't learn to sin by example too, but example is not the root, but rather the temptation to wickedness. The root is sin within, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds sin. Mark 7 verse 21 I'm glad to hear you are of this opinion and can confirm what you've said with a few mentions from the word. Man, in his birth, is compared to an ass. Scripture. Man is born like a wild ass's colt. Job 11 verse 12. To an unclean beast and to a wretched infant in its blood. Scripture. Hast thou not remembered the days of thy youth when thou wast naked and bare? Thou wast polluted in thy blood. Ezekiel 16, verse 22. In addition, all the firstborn who were offered to the Lord were to be redeemed at the age of a month, clearly a tender age before which they could be sinners by imitation. The scripture also establishes that by the sin of one, judgment came on all, and it assigns this reason. All have sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. And 3 verse 23. Nor is that baseless objection that Christ has taken away original sin by his death worth notice. First, because it isn't found in Scripture. Secondly, it makes them incapable of salvation by Christ, because only those who personally recognize they are sinners are to have salvation through him. Many other things could be added to this argument but between two people who so well agree as you and me, these can suffice for now. But when an opponent of this matter comes to deal with us, then we'll often have other strong arguments for him, if he's an antagonist worth taking notice of. But as was suggested before, he used to be the ringleading sinner or the master of harm among other children. Still, these are only generalities, so please tell me in detail about the sins of his childhood. I will. When he was just a child, he was so addicted to lying that his parents hardly knew when to believe anything he said. He not only invented and told lies, he also continued to maintain these lies as the truth with such a bold face that in his very countenance a person could clearly see the symptoms of a hard and desperate heart. This was certainly a wicked beginning, and proves he began to harden himself in sin by that time. Because unless he forced his heart to do so, a lie can't be knowingly told and carried on as I see he did. Such a liar must harden his heart, and muster courage in the execution of it. He must have reached a greater degree of wickedness to do this, since all he did went against that good upbringing you suggest he had from his father and mother. A lack of good upbringing, as you suggested, is often a cause for why children so easily become bad so soon, but even more when such training is absent, 
and there are bad examples enough to contribute to such behavior. It is sad to say, but it is like this in many families, and as a result, poor children are trained up in sin and nursed within the home for the devil and hell. But this wasn't the case with Mr. Badman, because to my knowledge, his lying behavior brought great grief to his parents. Their hearts were broken when they saw this in their young son, because they hadn't fallen short in encouraging and correcting him in an effort to make him better. But he didn't want to be told. But I heard it said to him over and over and over, that all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, Revelation 21, verses 8 and 27, and that whosoever loves and makes a lie would have no part in the new and heavenly Jerusalem, Revelation 22, verse 15. But nothing helped. When a suitable time or an occasion to lie came upon him, he easily invented, told, and stood firm in his lie, as if it were nothing but the truth. And he hardened his heart in this way with a straight face. It caused those around him to stand by and wonder. He even continued his lying when punished under the rod of correction, which is appointed by God for parents to use so that they might keep their children from hell. Scripture Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, verse 15 Do not withhold correction from the child, for if thou shalt beat him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 23, verses 13 through 14 Truly it was, as I said, a bad beginning. He served the devil early on and he became nurse to one of his brats. For a spirit of lying is the devil's brat, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, verse 44. Right, he is truly the father of it. A lie is spawned by the devil as the father and is brought forth by the wicked heart as the mother. There is another scripture which also says, Why has Satan filled thy heart to lie? Acts 5, verse 3, he calls the heart that is big with a lie, a heart that has conceived by the devil. Scripture, why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Acts 5, verse 4. True, his lie was a lie of the highest nature, but every lie has the same father and mother as this lie. For he is a liar and the father of it. As a result, a lie is the brat of hell, and it can't be in the heart before the person has committed a kind of spiritual adultery with the devil. Therefore, the person who tells a known lie has lain with and conceived it by the devil, the only father of lies. For a lie has only one father and mother, the devil and the heart. It's no wonder, then, that the hearts which hatch and spring forth lies are so much like the devil in regards to temperament, habits, or natural disposition. It's no surprise that even though God and Christ have resolved their word against liars, a liar is wedded to the devil himself. It seems unbelievable to me that since a lie is among the offspring of the devil, and since a lie brings the soul to the very den of devils, specifically the dark dungeon of hell, that people should be so desperately wicked as to become familiar with such a horrible thing. It also seems unbelievable to me, especially when I see for how minor a matter some men will study, contrive, and tell a lie. You'll have some who lie over and over just for a monetary profit. Yes, lie and stand firm in it, although they know they've lied. You will have some people who won't hesitate to tell lie after lie even when they gain nothing by it. They'll tell lies while in ordinary conversations with their neighbors as they share their news, jests, and their tales all adorned with lies. If they don't, they don't seem to sound interesting or show much to the imagination to the one being told. Sadly, what will these liars do when they are tossed down into hell, to be with that devil that conceived those lies in their heart, and so be tormented by fire 
and brimstone with him forever and ever for their lives. Can you give some examples of God's judgments on liars? That someone can tell to liars when they hear them lie, so perhaps they can be made afraid and ashamed to do so when they hear it. Examples? Why, one would think that Ananias and his wife are enough of an example to put a stop to a spirit addicted to lying. They were both stricken down dead by God himself for telling a lie, in the midst of a group of people. But if God's threatening of liars with hellfire and the loss of the kingdom of heaven won't succeed in convincing them to stop lying, I can't imagine what telling them about worldly judgments that have swept liars out of the world in times past would do. Now, as I said, this lying was one of the first sins Mr. Badman was addicted to, and he could think them up and tell them in a manner that filled his listeners with admiration and astonishment. I'm sorry to hear this about him, and even more because I fear this sin wasn't the only one to reign in him because usually one who is accustomed to lying is also accustomed to other evils. If that wasn't the case with Mr. Badman, it would indeed be a surprise. What you say is true. The liar is a captive slave of more than the spirit of lying, and therefore this Mr. Badman was also given to pilfering and stealing, just like he was a liar from childhood. Anything he could lay his hands on he counted his own whether they were the things of other children or something he could lay hold of at a neighbor's house, he would just take it. You must understand me, for being yet a child, he stole things of little value and nothing more, especially at first. But as he grew up in strength and maturity of intellect, he attempted to pilfer and steal things of more value than in the beginning. In the end, he took great pleasure in robbing gardens and orchards and as he grew up, stealing poultry from the neighborhood. But belonged to his father couldn't escape his fingers. He was so hardened in this mischief that in the end, everything was like fish that came to his net. Stealing Scripture Thou shalt not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15 Whosoever robs his father or his mother and says, It is no transgression. The same is the companion of the destroyer. Proverbs 28, verse 24. This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that steals shall be destroyed. Zechariah 5, verse 3. You make me wonder more and more. He wantonly and thoughtlessly played the thief, so young too. Even though he was just a child, he had to know that what he took from others did not belong to him. Besides, if his father was a good man, as you've said, he must have also heard from him that to steal was to disobey the law of God and run the danger of eternal damnation. His father didn't lack in trying methods to reclaim him. As I've been told, he often urged him, saying that in the law of Moses it says, Thou shalt not steal, Exodus 20, verse 15 and also that this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that steals, as it is written on one side of the roll, shall be destroyed. Zechariah 5, verse 3. Though he was little, the understanding given with natural qualities must have shown him that what he took from others was not his own, and that he wouldn't willingly have been treated that way himself but all was fruitless. Let father and conscience say what they would to him, he was resolved to go on in his wickedness. But as you've detailed, his father sometimes rebuked him for his wickedness. Please tell me how he acted then. How? Why, like a thief who was found out. He stood, staring sulkily and hanging his head in a sullen, pouting manner. A person might read, as we used to say, the picture of bad luck in his face. When his father demanded his answer to such questions concerning his wrongdoing, he grumbled and muttered at him. But that would be all he could get. But you said that he would also rob his father. 
I think that's an unnatural thing. Natural or unnatural, it's all the same to a thief. Besides, you must realize that he had companions who acted similarly to him, and the wickedness he saw in them more firmly knit their relationships, making them closer than either father or mother. And what did he care if his father and mother died because of heartache for him? If they died, he would have counted it a great release and freedom, because, to tell the truth, they and their guidance and advice were to him an oppressing burden. If I remember right, I heard some say that when he was among his companions, at times he greatly rejoiced that his parents were old and wouldn't live long. Then, he said, I will be my own man to do what I desire without their control. Then it seems he didn't view robbing his parents as a crime. Not at all. And for this reason he fell directly under that sentence, Scripture, whosoever robs his father or his mother and says it is no transgression, the same as the companion of the destroyer. Proverbs 28 verse 24 and because he valued who they were and their advice so lightly, it was a sign that he was of a very abominable spirit, and that some judgment waited to overtake him in the future. Scripture If one man sins against another, the judges shall judge him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they did not hearken unto the voice of their father because the Lord had already decided to kill them. 1 Samuel 2, verse 25 But can you imagine what it was like? I'm not talking about the suggestions of Satan by which he was, without a doubt, pressed to do these things. I'm talking about his conceit. What could he be thinking that would make him feel his manner of pilfering and stealing was no great matter? For that reason, he stole small things. He robbed orchards, gardens, and stole poultry, and the like. He looked at these as pranks of youth, and he wouldn't be talked out of it by anything his friends said. They told him he must not covet or desire even the smallest thing belonging to his neighbors, but that to desire anything was less grievous than taking it. If he did, it would be an offense against the law, but it was all the same to him. Between the wicked talk of his companions and the delusion of his own corrupt heart, he went on with his pilfering ways, and where he thought it safe to do so, he talked and laughed about it when he had finished. Once I heard a man on the ladder with the hangman's noose about his neck confess the deeds that had brought him to that end. When young, he got used to pilfering and stealing small things. To the best of my recollection, he told us that he began the trade of a thief by stealing small things, and because of that he warned all the youth gathered to see him die to listen to his warning. But even though he started out with little sins, by fooling around with little ones in the beginning, only made way for the committing of the bigger ones. Since you've opened the way to telling stories, I also will tell you one. While I didn't hear it with my own ears, I do believe my source. It's concerning one old fox who was hanged about twenty years ago or more at Hertford for being a thief. The story is this. At a summer court session held at Hartford, while the judge sat upon the bench, in comes this old fox into court dressed in a green suit with his leather belt in his hand, his shirt open, and perspiring profusely as if he'd run for his life. Once in, he spoke aloud. My lord, he said, here is the worst rogue to breathe upon the face of the earth. I've been a thief since I was a child. When I was just a little one, I started to rob orchards and to do other similar wicked things, and I have continued as a thief ever since. My lord, for many years there hasn't been a robbery committed within miles of this place that I've either not been a part of or not privy to. The judge thought the fellow was crazy, but after talking with some of the justices, they agreed to indict him for several criminal actions. He heartily confessed his guilt to all of them, and so was hanged, along with his wife at the same time. What a remarkable story!
And you think it's true? It's not only remarkable, but it's also a perfect example to our purpose. This thief, like Mr. Badman, began his trade early in life. He began where Mr. Badman began, even robbing orchards and other such things, which brought him, as you can see, from sin to sin, until it finally brought him to the public shame of sin, which is the gallows. As for the truth of this story, the one who told it to me was in the court at the same time. He stood within less than two yards of old Todd when he heard him speak the words aloud. These two sins of lying and stealing were a bad sign of an evil end. So they were. And yet Mr. Badman didn't come to his end, like old Todd, though I'm afraid to say it was just as bad. Actually, no, it was worse than death on the gallows, though less seen by spectators. But I can tell you more of that later. You talk about these two sins as if they were all that Mr. Badman was addicted to in his youth. Sadly, while he was only a boy, he bred multitudes of sins, like a beggar with lice. Why, what other sins was he addicted to? I mean, while he was just a child. You don't need to ask what other sins he was addicted to, but rather which other sins he wasn't addicted to, because you can safely say that nothing that was vile came mistakenly to him. Anything that suited the abilities of his age. If he was capable, he did it. In reality, there are some sins which childhood doesn't know how to tamper with, but I'm talking about sins that he was capable of committing. I'll tell you about two or three more. First, he couldn't tolerate the Lord's Day because of the holiness that accompanied it. He felt like the beginning of that day was like going to prison. Unless he could get away from his father and mother and loiter in some small, unpleasant place among his companions until holy duties were over. Reading the scriptures, hearing sermons and godly conversations, and repeating sermons and prayers were things he couldn't bear to endure. While his father did his best to keep a strict eye on him regarding the observation of the day, when his father wasn't looking, he often gave him the slip. When he wasn't able to get away, he clearly showed through his actions that he was highly discontent with all of it. He thoughtlessly went through the motions, idly talked with his brothers, and thought every godly occasion to be seven times longer than it was and resented it all until it was over. I don't think his detesting of the Lord's Day was because of the day itself, because since it is a day, it is just like all the other days of the week. But I suppose that the reason he hated it had to do with the holiness and sanctity of God, which are connected to it, because it is the day above all the days of the week that ought to be spent in holy devotion, in remembrance of our Lord's resurrection from the dead. Yes, that's why he was so against it, because even more restraint was placed on him on that day, so he couldn't just do what he wanted. By establishing a day set apart for holy undertakings and obligations, doesn't God create a great confirmation of how the hearts and inclinations of people stand in relation to holiness of heart and conversation and holy responsibilities? Yes, without a doubt. A person will show his heart and his life and what they are more by one Lord's Day than by all the other days of the week. The reason is that on the Lord's Day there is a special restraint laid on men regarding thoughts and life, more than on other days of the week. Also, men are commanded on that day to a stricter performance of holy obligations, with a limitation of worldly business compared with other days. Therefore, if their hearts are not naturally inclined to good, they will show it on the Lord's Day, because they will be seen for what they are. The Lord's Day is a kind of symbol of the heavenly Sabbath above, and it makes how the heart views holiness obvious all the time, more than in how a short-lived responsibility or obligation does. On other days, in fifteen minutes, a person can be inconsistent and unreliable about holy duties. But the Lord's Day is a day that commands a person to a continuous holiness. Scripture
Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Exodus 20, verse 8. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Genesis 2, verse 2. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Exodus 31, verse 14 and 17. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the congregations of Galatia, do ye likewise. Each first Sabbath let each one of you set aside in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no collections when I come. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, the way one lives out the Lord's day is a greater proof of the frame and temper of the heart. It makes clear their tendencies more than the performance of other responsibilities does. Therefore, God marks a great difference between those who truly call and walk in this day as holy and who honor it because it offers an opportunity to show how they delight to honor Him. They don't just have an hour to show it, but a whole day to show it. Scripture If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy will on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delightful, holy, glorious day of the Lord, and shalt honor Him by not doing thine own ways, nor seeking thine own will, nor speaking thine own words. Isaiah 58 verse 13 to him, there's a big difference between these and the other sort who say, When will the Sabbath be over so we can get on with our worldly business? Scripture After the Sabbath day, we will open the storehouse of bread, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit. Amos 8, verse 5 The first he calls blessed, but brands the others as unsanctified worldlings. Certainly, to delight ourselves in God's service on His holy days gives a better verification of a sanctified nature than to begrudge the day or to be weary of the holy responsibilities of such days, like Mr. Badman did. There may be something in what you say, because if a person can't bear to keep one day holy to God, to be sure, they've given sufficient proof they are unsanctified. As such, what would they do in heaven, since it is a place where a perpetual Sabbath is to be kept to God forever? Scripture There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verse 9 And for all I know, one reason why one day in seven has been set apart for holy duties for men by our Lord may be to convict them that there is hostility in the hearts of sinners to the God of heaven because he who hates holiness hates God himself. They pretend to love God, and yet don't love a holy day, or spending that day in one continuous act of holiness to the Lord. They may just as well say nothing as to call him Lord, Lord, and still don't do the things he says. And this Mr. Badman was just such a person. He couldn't bear this day, or any of the responsibilities or obligations related to it. In fact, when he could get away from it, he'd spend it with his friends in all manner of idleness and speaking irreverently of God. Then he'd be happy enough. But when people do this, isn't it nothing more than taking an opportunity at God's forbidding to follow our passions for comfort and to satisfy our lusts and delights of the flesh? I take the liberty to speak like this about Mr. Badman based on confidence in that what you've said about him is true. You don't need to make an apology for your censoring of Mr. Badman because all who knew him will confirm what you say about him to be true. He couldn't stand either that day or anything else that had the stamp or image of God on it. Sin. Sin and to do what was of no value, that's what he delighted in from the time he was a little child. I must say again, I'm sorry to hear it, for his own sake and for the sake of his parents who must have been shattered with such undertakings as these, because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, 
Ephesians 5, verse 6. And without a doubt, he has gone to hell if he died without repentance. And to bring up a child for hell is sad for parents to think on. About his dying, as I told you, I will give you an account of the details later, but right now we are talking about his life and the manner of his days in his childhood, even about the sins that showed up in his life then, some of which I have mentioned already, but there are still more to follow, which aren't at all minor compared to what you've already heard. Please tell me, what are they? As a young boy, he was greatly given to dreadful swearing and cursing. Eventually, he thought no more of swearing and cursing than I do of counting my fingers. He'd do it without anything exciting his anger to provoke him. He considered it an honor to swear and curse, and it came as natural to him as eating, drinking, and sleeping. Oh, what a young villainous person he was! It certainly, as the Apostle says, a yielding of members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Romans 6, verse 13. This is proceeding from evil to evil with a witness. This argues that he was definitely a foul-mouthed young wretch. He was. And as I told you, he considered this kind of sinning to be a badge of honor above everything. He thought of himself as a man's man once he learned to swear and curse boldly. I'm convinced that many think like you've said that to swear is a thing that boldly becomes them, and that the best way for them to add authority or terror into their words is to stuff them full of swearing. You're right. I'm also persuaded that men wouldn't usually just belch out their blasphemous oaths as they do. They take pride in it and think that to swear is gentlemanlike. Once it becomes a regular habit, it's hard for them to abandon it all the days of their lives. Now that we are into it, please show me the difference between swearing and cursing, because there is a difference, isn't there? Yes, there's a difference between swearing and cursing. Swearing, empty, worthless swearing, is what young badman was accustomed to doing. Such sinful swearing is a light and wicked use of God's name to witness our conceited and foolish declaring of things. Of these there are two sorts. First are things we swear are or will be done. You swear you have done such a thing, that such a thing is so or will be so. It doesn't matter which of these it is if it is done lightly, wickedly, and groundlessly. It's not effectual because it is a sin against the third commandment, which says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. For this is a vain use of that holy and sacred name and so is a sin. Without wholeheartedly repenting, there is no forgiveness, nor can it be rightly expected. The second is the making of a solemn declaration or affirmation that something is true or false in his name. Then it appears that when a man swears sincerely, according to the facts, yet swears carelessly and groundlessly, his oath is evil and by making it he is under sin. Yes, someone can say, The Lord lives, and that is true, and yet in so saying he swears falsely, because he swears foolishly, needlessly, and without a valid reason. Scripture And if they should say, The Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Jeremiah 5 verse 2 to swear unavoidably for legitimate reasons which a man does when he swears as being called to it by God, that is tolerated by the word, but this wasn't the case regarding Mr. Badman swearing, and so that's not what we are concerned about in this conversation. Through the prophet Jeremiah, I see that a person can sin in swearing to a truth. Therefore, those who swear to confirm their jests and lies and to their way of thinking, better embellish their foolish talking, must necessarily sin most horribly. They sin by personal whim, rather than any reason, because they presume to imagine that God is as wicked as they are, that is to say, that He declares lies to be true. Or, as I said before, to swear is to call God to witness, and to swear to a lie is to call God to witness that that lie is true. 
This, therefore, must offend, because it puts the highest insult upon the holiness and righteousness of God. As a result, his wrath must sweep them away. Scripture This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that steals, as it is written on one side of the roll, shall be destroyed. And everyone that swears, as it is written on the other side of the roll, shall be destroyed. Zechariah 5 verse 3 In Scripture, this kind of swearing is categorized with lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery, and so must not go unpunished. Scripture Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not? Jeremiah 7 verse 9 By swearing and lying and murdering and stealing and committing adultery they prevailed, and blood touches blood. Therefore the earth shall mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall be cut off, with the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven, and even the fishes of the sea shall be caught. Hosea 4 verses 2 through 3 For if God will not hold guiltless anyone that takes his name in vain, Exodus 20 verse 7, which I have shown a person can do when they swear to a truth, how can anyone imagine that they could consider such a person guiltless who, by swearing, appeals to God for lies that aren't true, or who swears out of their frantic foolishness? It would distress and provoke a person of cool, dispassionate reason to anger if someone swore to a notorious lie and affirmed that that person would confirm it as a truth Yet this is what people do who deal with the holy God. They tell their offhand tales and lies and then swear by God that they are true. This kind of swearing was as common with young bad man as it was to eat when he was hungry or to go to bed when it was night. I have often pondered what it could be that makes men so public in the use of the sin of swearing, since those who are wise will never believe them. You are sure there's no good reason, because the thing itself is abominable. Therefore it must be prompted by the spirit of the devil within them. Also, at times, it flows from hellish rage, when the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of our nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every nature of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of beings in the sea may be tamed, and is tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue, which is an evil that cannot be restrained, and is full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, even the Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the image of God. James 3 verses 6 through 9 But generally, swearing flows from that daring boldness that invites defiance to the very law that forbids it. And swearers think that by belching a blasphemous oath from their foul, polluted mouths, they show themselves more fearless than others. And they also imagine that by these outrageous kinds of evil behavior, they will get the better of those people they have to deal with by making them believe their lies to be true. They also swear frequently to make a profit by it, and when they meet with fools, they overcome them this way. But if I might give a word of advice in this matter, no buyer should lay out one fraction of a penny to a person who publicly swears while doing his job, especially with an oathmaster who endeavors to swear away his product or service to take his customer's money into his own pocket. All these reasons for swearing, so far as I can see, flow from the same root as the oaths themselves. It's that they spring from a hardened and desperate heart. But please, show me how wicked cursing is to be distinguished from this kind of swearing. Swearing, as I said, immediately has to do with the name of God. It calls upon him to be witness to the truth of what is said, if those who swear, swear by him. Some certainly swear by idols, like by the mass, by Our Lady, by saints, beasts, birds, and other creatures. But the usual way of the profane ones in England is to swear by God, Christ, faith, and the like. 
But however or by whatever they swear, cursing is distinguished from swearing in this way. To curse, to curse profanely, is to sentence another or ourself to or for evil, or to wish that some evil might happen unjustly to the person or thing under the curse. It is to sentence someone to or for evil without a cause. This is how Shimei cursed David. He sentenced him for and to evil unjustly when he said to him, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord has returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy evil, because thou art a bloody man. Second Samuel 16, verses 7 through 8. David calls this a grievous curse. And behold, he said to his son Solomon, Thou hast with thee Shimei, a Benjamite, who cursed me, at the Jordan. 1 Kings 2, verse 8. But what was this curse? First, it was a wrong sentence passed on David. Shimei called him bloody man, and thou man of Belial, which he was not. Secondly, he sentenced him by saying that the evil presently upon him was for being a bloody man, meaning being against the house of Saul, when in fact the evil which overtook David was for quite another reason. We can apply this to the irreverent people of our times, who, even when they are young, in their rage and envy, have little else to offer but an unjust sentence against their neighbor for and to evil. How common is it with many people when they are just a little offended with someone to cry something like, Hang him! Damn him! Rogue! This is both a sentencing of him for and to evil, and is in itself a grievous curse. The other kind of cursing is to wish that some evil might happen to and overtake a certain person or thing. This kind of cursing Job counted as a grievous sin. He said, For I have never even suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse upon his soul. Job 31, verse 30. So again, this is a wicked cursing. To wish evil might either befall someone or even ourselves. And it is this kind of cursing that young bad man became familiar with. He'd wish that evil might come to pass on others. For instance, he might wish their necks be broken that their brains be bashed out, or that the pox or plague would befall them, as well as other similar curses. All of these are a devilish kind of cursing which are becoming a common sin of our time. Also, as often as he could, he'd wish a curse on himself, saying, I pray I might be hanged or burned or that the devil might come fetch me, if what I'm saying is not true. We consider the noisy, swearing fellows to be great swearers, but when in their hellish fury they say, God damn me, or God take my life, or similar things, they curse rather than swear. Yes, even curse themselves with a wish that damnation might come on them. And the truth is, they'll see this wish and curse of theirs accomplished in a little time, for they will find themselves in hellfire if they don't repent of their sins. But did this young bad man get used to this filthy kind of language? I think I can honestly say that nothing was more frequent from his mouth. It's how he responded with even the least provocation. He was so proficient in such language that no one, not his father, mother, brother, sister, servant, nor not even the cattle his father had, could escape these curses. Even the brute beasts, when he drove or rode on them, if they didn't please him, they were sure to play a part in his curse. He'd wish their necks be broken, their legs be broken, their guts to spill out, that the devil might come fetch them or something like that. And it's no surprise, because a person who dares to wish damnation or other bad curses on himself or his dearest friends and relatives won't hesitate to wish evil on a silly beast in his madness. Well, I certainly see that this bad man was a desperate, nasty character. But since you've explained this much to me, 
Please show me where this evil of cursing arises from and what dishonor it brings to God. For I can easily recognize that it brings damnation to the soul. In general, this evil of cursing arises from the desperate wickedness of the heart, but particularly from envy, which, to my understanding, is the most influential sin next to witchcraft. It also arises from pride, which was the sin of the fallen angels. It also arises from scorn and contempt of others. But for a man to curse himself, it must arise from desperate madness. Scripture For thine own heart knows that thou thyself likewise hast spoken evil of others many times. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 22 The dishonor that it brings to God is this. It takes away from him his authority, for it is only in his power to bless and curse, not to curse wickedly like Mr. Badman, but justly and righteously. By his curse he gives to those who are wicked the reward due their deeds. Besides, in their wicked cursing of their neighbor and others, these wicked men even curse God himself in the work of his hands. Scripture With it we bless God, even the Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the image of God. James 3, verse 9. Man is God's image, and to curse wickedly the image of God is to curse God himself. Therefore, when men wickedly swear, they rip and tear God's name and make him an affirmer and approver of all their wickedness. So he who curses and condemns his neighbor in this way or who wishes him evil, curses, condemns, and wishes evil to the image of God, and, consequently, judges and condemns God himself. Suppose that a person said, I wish that the king's picture was burned. Wouldn't this person's words decree them an enemy to the king? It's the same with those who, by cursing, wish evil to their neighbor or to themselves. They condemn the image of God himself. But do you think that the men who do this are aware that they are acting so abhorrently, so dreadfully? The question isn't what people believe concerning their sin, but what God's word says about it. If God's word says that swearing and cursing are sins, even though people might count them as virtues, their reward will be a reward for sin, namely the damnation of the soul. To curse another person and to swear vainly and falsely are sins against the light of nature. First, because whoever curses another, even as he does it, knows he wouldn't want to be treated in that way himself. Second, to swear is also a sin against the same law, because nature lets me know that I shouldn't lie, much less swear to confirm it. Yes, even unbelievers have looked at swearing as a solemn ordinance of God, and therefore not to be lightly or vainly used by people to confirm a matter of truth. Scripture And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these sons are my sons, and these sheep are my sheep, and all that thou seest is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters, or unto their sons unto whom they have given birth? Now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. Then Jacob took a stone, and set it up for a pillar. And Jacob said unto his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones, and made a heap. And they ate there upon the heap. And Laban called it Jagarza Hadutha but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Galid, and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. See? God is witness between me and thee. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar which I have raised up between me and thee. Let this heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap against thee, 
and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar against me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread, and they ate bread and slept in the mount. And early in the morning Laban rose up and kissed his sons and his daughters, and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. Genesis 31, verses 43-55 through 55. Since cursing and swearing are such evils in the eyes of God, I wonder why he doesn't make examples of some of those who commit such wickedness. Sadly, he has a thousand times before, which can easily be seen by observing people in every age and country. Putting aside the great abundance that could be mentioned, I could present you with several examples myself. I will present you with two. One was that dreadful judgment of God upon one N.P. at Wimbledon in Surrey. After a horrible fit of swearing at and cursing some people who didn't please him, he suddenly fell sick and a short time later he died, raving, cursing, and swearing. But above all, take that dreadful story of Dorothy Maitley, a resident of Ashover, in the county of Derby. It was shared with me that this Dorothy Maitley was known to be a great swearer, cursor, liar, and thief by people of the town, just like Mr. Badman. For work, she regularly washed the rubbish that came from the lead mines and gathered small particles of lead ore. She usually defended her actions by swearing and cursing, such as, If it's not true, I wish I'd just sink into the earth, or I wish God would open the earth and swallow me up. Then on the 23rd of March, 1660, while washing ore on the top of a steep hill, about a quarter mile from Ashover, this Dorothy was charged by a boy for taking two single coins from his pocket when he laid his trousers to the side while he wore his work pants. She violently denied it, and again wished the ground might swallow her up if she had them. She used the same wicked words on several occasions that day. Now a man of good reputation from Ashover, by the name of George Hodgkinson, came by chance to where Dorothy was and stopped for a time to talk with her as she washed her oar. A little child stood by the side of her tub, and another stood at a distance, calling for the girl to come away. So George took the girl by the hand to lead her to the girl who called her. As he stepped away, they hadn't gone more than ten yards from Dorothy when they heard her crying for help. They turned to see the woman, her tub, and sieve twirling around and sinking into the ground. George called to her, Pray to God to pardon your sin, because you aren't likely to survive. She and her tub twirled round and round until they sank about three yards into the earth, and then her fall stopped. She called for help again, thinking the drop had stopped. Now George stood there, greatly surprised, trying to think about how best to help her. But before he could make a move, a large stone appeared in the unstable earth. It fell on her head and broke her skull, followed by the soil which collapsed around her and covered her. Later, when her body was dug up, they found her about four yards deep, with the boy's two coins in her pocket. But her tub and sieve couldn't be found. You who like to curse and swear, God hears you. Take heed. Start to care. This wretch the ground did swallow up, fear lest you drink the selfsame cup. You remind me of another sad story which took place about a bowshot from where I once lived. There was a tavern tucked away out of public view. The man who ran the place had a son whose name was Edward, but whom they called Ned. This Edward was a senseless halfwit, both in his words and behavior. When certain fun-loving companions visited the tavern once or twice a week, his father entertained his guests and called his son to make them laugh by his foolish words and gestures. So when these merry, bold men came to this man's tavern, 
the father would call for Ned. Ned would come, and the rogue was devilishly addicted to cursing. Yes, addicted to cursing his father and mother and anyone else who crossed him. And even though he was a half-wit, because he saw that his practice was pleasing, he did it with all the more boldness. At the times when these bullies came to habitually drink at the tippling house, as they called it, to befuddle their thinking and to make merry, then Ned had to be called. Because his father was best acquainted with Ned, he knew how to provoke him. He'd usually ask him baiting questions, or commanded him to do some chore that would be sure to trigger him. Then in his foolish way he cursed his father bitterly, at which the old man would laugh along with the rest of the guests. Since it pleased them so much, they continued to ask that Ned be provoked to curse even more, that they might still be entertained and roused to laughter. This is how the old man entertained his guests. The curses with which this Ned cursed his father, and which the old man laughed at, were things like, The devil take you, or the devil fetch you. He'd also wished many plagues and destructions on him. Well, it came to pass, through the righteous judgment of God, that Ned's wishes and curses were fulfilled upon his father in a short time. You see, not many months passed before the devil certainly took him, possessed him, and in just a few days carried him out of this world by death. I say that Satan took him and possessed him, because that's what the one who knew him and had to deal with him in his lamentable condition ascertained. He said he could feel him like a live thing go up and down his body, but when the time of tormenting came, for he often had tormenting fits, then he lay like a hard bump in the soft place of his chest. I mean to tell you that I saw it myself, and it scratched and tore him, made him roar with agony until he died. I told you before that I was an ear witness, an eyewitness of what I'm saying, and I really was. I have heard Ned in his roguery cursing his father, and his father laughing about it most heartily, while still provoking Ned to curse more, to amuse him more. When his father was possessed, I also saw him in one of his fits. At that time, I saw his flesh look like it was gathered up in a heap about the size of half an egg. It's thought that this was the work of the devil, and it brought unspeakable torture and affliction on the old man. A man of privilege was sent for, was more than an ordinary doctor, he was asked to cast out this devil, and I was there when he attempted to do it. They carried the possessed man into an anteroom, laid him on his belly on a form, with his head hanging over the end. Then they bound him to it. With this accomplished, they set a pan of coals under his mouth, and put something in it which put off a great amount of smoke. This was said to be the way to fetch out the devil. So they kept the man like this until he was almost smothered in the smoke, but no devil came out of him. At this point, the doctor was somewhat embarrassed. The man was still greatly afflicted, and I went away still wondering and fearing. Within a short time after this, the very thing that possessed the man carried him out of the world, according to the cursed wishes of his son. And this was the end of this hellish merrymaking. When parents take delight in children's evil, the children send their parents to the devil. These were all sad judgments. Yes, dreadful judgments indeed. They remind me of the threatening of those verses in Psalms, even though they mainly concerned Judas, Scripture. As he loved the curse, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in the blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with the curse, like as with his garment, and it entered into his bowels like water, and like oil into his bones. Psalm 109, verses 17 through 18. It is a fearful thing for young people to be trained up in a way of cursing and swearing. Trained up in them. 
I can't say Mr. Badman was, because his father often lamented the badness of his children to me, and this naughty Badman in particular. I believe that the wickedness of his children troubled his thoughts, and caused him to go to bed many a night with a heavy heart, only to rise with a heavy heart in the morning. But to his graceless son it was all the same, because neither wholesome advice nor fatherly sorrow made him mend his manners. Yes, there are some who train up their children to swear, curse, lie, and steal. The misery of such poor children whose misfortune it is to be ushered into the world by such ungodly parents and to be under their training is great. It would have been better for such parents if they hadn't given birth to them and better for such children if they hadn't been born. Oh, I think it horrible for a father or mother to train up a child in the very way that leads to hell and damnation. But Mr. Badman wasn't brought up like this by his parents. But I think that since this young Badman couldn't be governed at home, his father should have tried to get him help outside the home by sending him to live with some man he knew was able to control him and to keep him working hard at some job. That at least would have prevented him from having the time to do those wicked pastimes, 